We're going to continue in the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 2, talking about perfect unity. The world is always seeking peace and unity. When the world cries unity, they're seeking acceptance of their wicked lifestyles. That's what unity is to them. You must accept what they're doing. When evangelicals seek unity, they're willing to compromise standards to achieve it. Folks, we need to be careful we do not compromise on the Word of God. Now, I believe sometimes there's man-made standards, but when it comes to biblical standards, we cannot compromise. And it is sad that many, for the sake of unity, say, well, then we have to find common ground and compromise. No. But they'll allow different doctrines to be represented as long as they all claim to be Christian. They allow CCM so no one is offended. My wife was reading a description of a church that says about their worship service because they want people to, I forget exactly the wording they use, but they want people to feel comfortable there. They have light shows and, and they, and because we, we just passed this church and it was huge. It looks like an old farm and they bought like the whole farm and built all these buildings on it. It was a massive complex they had. And I like wonder what that church is. So she looks it up and it was going on and on about how they, you know, they're praise and worship bands and, and all this other stuff. So, you know, you know what I'm talking about? It probably looks like a rock concert when you go there. You know, I heard it said years ago, the one that changes is the one that has been reached. In other words, when we reach souls for Jesus Christ, they should be changing to the image of Christ, right? When the church is changing to look like the world, the world has reached the church. Christ does want us to have unity as a church, but not at the expense of pure doctrine. This is why we have every member of Freedom Baptist Church agree and sign a doctrinal statement because we need to agree in doctrine, do we not? How can we have unity if we're all on different pages in our doctrine? James 3.17 says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Again, the problem is the evangelicals forget that first part. First pure. The doctrine of God is first pure, then peaceable. See, they move right on to the peaceable at the expense of the purity. For those who are in the military, remember the first time, or maybe you were in a marching band or something of that nature, remember the first time you marched? It was complete chaos because everybody had their own idea how this should be done. And then we had to be taught how to cooperate together, how to lay aside our own will and to unite and function as one and once everybody realized it, everybody learned, everybody humbled themselves and got it together, the end product was a unified marching unit, right? But until then, it was chaotic. I remember the first time they tried teaching us obliques. Now, I don't care how long you've been marching, obliques are still hard, right? But we were doing this oblique, and he, we, we went about 100 yards, and he says, halt, and nobody move. He says, now look around. And we looked like this, I mean, we were all over the place because, you know, you're, what are you guiding off of when you're doing an oblique, right? 
And he goes, no, you got to do it right. And he's explained how to guide off of it. I don't even remember how anymore. But we tr- practiced, 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 practiced. And then he did these fancy, um, instead of just an about face where, I don't even remember what it's called anymore, but where this column would turn and then this would go around and this would come around and, and you'd all turn around that way. And we got that right. And then as we're marching down the street, every company we'd pass, he'd go, hey, watch what my company can do. And he'd, he'd give the command and we'd all turn around because how about that, huh? And he was really proud of us because we had learned these complicated marching things. And anyhow, it all took the fact that every one of us learned to be unified and do it together. So it should be in a church. This body of Christ should be unified in what we do. Because are we not a body, right? And does your body not work together with all the other parts? Supposed to. (laughs) Good answer. Supposed to. But when your body's not working correctly with all the other parts, you know, somebody who doesn't have hands. I saw uh, one documentary and somebody who didn't have hands and they could feed themselves with their feet. Well, you know, your feet are meant for walking, not for eating. Um, Now I understand they had really no choice, okay? Other parts can do what the missing parts do, but they can't do it as well or the same way. And this is why it's important everybody in this church is doing what they're supposed to be doing and serving God where God has placed you So let us read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So three ways I want us to examine how we can have perfect unity from this passage. First, we'll see that unity is completely heavenly. Completely heavenly. Secondly, we'll observe that unity is complete harmony. And then our third and last point, will be that unity requires complete humility. You and I must strive to live and work together in perfect harmony. Let's ask the Lord for his guidance, please. Father, I pray as we examine these truths this morning from your word, again, we'd understand the need of unity and harmony as we work for you. And Lord, I pray that this church would continue to grow and be strengthened and to work in unity for your sake. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Now in verse 1, Paul says, if there be any consolation, if there be any comfort. Now these if statements in Greek are called a first-class conditions, means that they are assumed to be true. Okay, there's different conditions, conditional clauses in the Greek, and the first class is assumed to be true. So you could, you could substitute the if with a since, and it would say the same thing. So can I do that then, please? Since there be therefore consolation in Christ, and since comfort of love, and since fellowship of the Spirit, you see, because it's assumed to be true. But this is an encouragement in Christ. What does consolation mean? It means an exhortation, an encouragement, or help. The Greek 
word there is the same root from which we get the word comforter in John 14, 16, the, the idea of a paraclete, one that comes alongside to help. And you and I are to be a comfort to one another. We find comfort in Jesus Christ, do we not? So he's given us the comforter, the Holy Spirit of God that dwells in us, that gives us comfort of God. And are we not to share that comfort with others? But he says, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, the comfort, the persuasive power that points to the basis for hope and provides incentive, a cheering along. Now the love here is the agape love, that highest form of love, that selfless sacrificial love. And there is comfort in love. True love will give incentive and bring cheer. Why? Because I'm not loving to get. I'm loving for the benefit of the one I love. And that does bring cheer. You see, the world has a love concept of, I'm going to love you as long as I'm getting something out of it. Aren't you glad that wasn't God's love? Because what do we have to offer God? Nothing. And so if his love was what the world teaches love is, that I'm going to love to get something back, then every one of us would be burning in hell right now. He loved us because he chose to love us. And he loved for our benefit. Why were we yet sinners? Christ died for us. Now, if that is the love that God has had for us, then shouldn't we demonstrate that love toward others? I understand there are people in this world that are harder to get along with than others, right? Okay, let's be honest, right? Let's not put on the pharisaical attitude. Do your, does your personality mesh with every single personality you come across? No. But does that mean you still should not choose to love them? And if you make the choice to love them, you're going to overcome these personality differences. But Christians should be cheerful a Christian that is not happy and rejoicing is not focusing on the love of Christ and has no love for souls of men. Carnal Christians are the most miserable people on God's earth. You see, the lost are enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Now, many of them are miserable because they're without God. The spiritual man who is walking with God has true joy, love, peace, all the fruit of the Spirit in his heart, does he not? And so it is interesting, as we were visiting some old friends that we haven't seen for 14, 15 years, it's been a little while since we've been up there, there was automatic camaraderie, automatically a peace, automatically joy being around them. You know why? Because these are spiritual Christians walking with God. If you find yourself, and this is what I try to do, when I find myself complaining or not satisfied, or whatever, try to get alone before God and say, God, I must have pride or carnality of some kind in my life right now. Because your word tells me that when I'm walking in the Spirit, I'm going to have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. When the fruit of the Spirit is not manifesting itself in my life, then what does that mean, Christian? And we need to be honest with ourselves. When we find ourselves not, not expressing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Now, 
Does that mean that everything in life, there's never going to be anything in life that doesn't upset you? No. But even when those things come, how are you handling it? Are you handling it carnally? You see, it doesn't make us pansies and pacifists. Because Jesus was perfectly love, right? Was he still having love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith when he walked into the temple and turned over the tables? Yes. But what was happening, the sin that was happening in God's house needed to be corrected, and he had a righteous anger or righteous indignation against what was happening. So don't mistake, don't confuse the two. You understand what I'm saying? But Christ's love for us should be an incentive for us to serve him. The fact that Christ loved us. What else can we do, Paul says, but give ourselves a living sacrifice to him? True love brings comfort. Let's admit it. When you were younger and you were sick, you didn't want dad, did you? You wanted mom. Why? Because mom had a way of comforting you. Dad would be like, here's a straw, suck it up. This will make you a better man, right? Mom's like, oh, I'm so sorry you're sick. And, you know, and she would take care of you and get all this stuff. And dad's like, no, he was loving. I, I, I'm picking on dad, but you know what I'm saying, right? Dad's, moms, we understand this, right? You know, in our marriage relationships, a couple that has true love for one another is going to have a strong relationship. When husbands are loving their wives as Christ loved the church, that he's making the choice to love her and to look out for her benefit, it's going to be a stronger relationship. And she's going to respond with love. You see, it's the men that are commanded to love, the women are commanded to submit. And men love to always, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. Well, how about focus on husbands love your wives and make it a home in which she wants to submit to you? But there's fellowship in the Spirit going on in verse 1. If any fellowship of the Spirit... Having something in common, the sharing that we have in something or someone. We have a common bond as brothers and sisters in Christ because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Again, as I said, as we were uh, visiting different folks, it was interesting. Those that are Christians who were living for Christ, how we'd had that common bond immediately. And some of them, even after 14, 15 years, whatever it's been, it's like we never stopped, you know, picked up right where we were. There must be agreement if we're going to serve together. Amos 3.3, can two walk together except they be agreed? But then there also needs to be a compassion for other Christians. Paul talks about if any bowels and mercies, bowels the innermost feelings or the affections of love. So, we say today, I love you with all my heart, right? Well, the idea then would be, I love you with all my bowels. Now, ladies, you probably say, yeah, glad he didn't say that. That doesn't sound so romantic, okay? But <laughs> the thought is the same thing as what we say today with, I love you with all my heart. Just be glad you weren't born or didn't live back then when he'd come to you and say, I love you with all my bowels. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but that was the idea. And it says, bowels and mercies, or compassion or pity. Do we have a deep compassion for one another? Paul said, if you have compassion, then fulfill my joy. But we cannot have unity without Christ. 
So unity is completely heavenly. Secondly, unity is complete harmony. Unity brings joy. Again, fulfill ye my joy. It's an imperative. It's a command. He's stating that his joy would be full if the Philippians were completely united. If we want true joy, then we must work in complete harmony. It says that you might be like-minded having the same love. Like-minded has the idea of a harmony of mind. Again, this is why our doctrine must be in harmony. Because how can we say we agree if we don't even agree on the Word of God? We must be harmony in the way we operate. There needs to be a singleness of purpose as we minister, as we go witnessing, as we conduct our business. You know, we have a mission and purpose statement that we wrote, and and I believe it is a scriptural one. But the reason why I wrote that is because everything we do needs to really bounce off of, is this meeting the mission and purpose of this church? Is this something that is just a thing to do because every other church is doing it? Is this something to do because it sounds fun? Or is this really going to help us grow as a church Is this going to help meet the great commission of the church? Is this going to help us in our purpose of why God has placed us here, discipling uh, Christians, strengthening the church, strengthening the body of Christ? Is it going to accomplish this goal? If not, then the question is, why do it? I think many churches do well to figure out why are they doing half of the things they do? Is it just to be busy? Or is it truly to help strengthen the body of Christ? But then he says again, having the same love. Again, that agape love that we're to have one toward another. The same love as Christ had for us. You know, if we are seeking the best for others, if we're choosing to love others, if we're choosing to... Okay, as I said earlier, The agape love is a selfless, sacrificial love that loves for the benefit of the object being loved. So if I love you and I'm looking out for what is best for you, it's harder than to pick apart and criticize because I'm trying to build you up. Instead of seeing ways in which I could tear you down, I'm looking for ways in which to build you up, right? Looking looking at the potential... See, here's what we often look at. Here's where somebody is. Well, see, they're, they're just not growing the way they should be. Blah, 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 blah. Well, how about looking at the potential where they could be and help them get there, right? We too often don't look at people's potential. Well, look, look at where they've grown already. Look at how they've already started reading the Bible daily and how they're understanding the the principles of God's word and how they're applying it to their lives. Wow, if they continue at this rate, where could they be five, ten years from now? Well, then let's let's help them get there. And then he says, being a one accord of one mind, one accord or one spirit, as we're filled with the spirit, he will bring unity. You know, if you look hard enough, you can find fault in any church. I know people who it seems like every church they go to, there's a problem in that church. And I'm like, of course there is. Well, I just can't go there anymore because da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Really? You know, I've even heard it said, well, there's too many hypocrites in the church. Well, there's too many hypocrites at Walmart. Then why shop there? It, It really, our logic sometimes is really ridiculous. 
If I'm going to church to find fault with the church so that I don't have to go to church, I can always find it. You know why? Because the church is filled with human beings who have problems. And there's always going to be problems. But if I go to church to try to be a blessing to others, then I'm always going to leave rejoicing. If I go to church trying to help build the unity of the church, if I go to church looking for ways in which I can serve in the body, I'm going to be blessed because I'm giving, not taking. But it's interesting when I become a giver, not a taker, how that God blesses us anyhow. And we end up walking out blessed and refreshed and and full in so many ways. But then lastly, unity requires complete humility. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Don't do what you do for show, for praise of men, for accolades of people, but do it for the glory of God. It requires humility. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Instead of looking at self saying, oh, I'm better than so-and-so, let's look at others and say, wow, look at how God is using them. And esteem others better than themselves. Because the Bible says, only by pride cometh contention in Proverbs 13, 10. Let me say that again. Only. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? By pride cometh contention. So then I guess the question is this. When there's contention, where's the pride? Right? Maybe it's time to do a little self-examination and say, then Lord, show me my pride. Let nothing be done through strife. Strife has the idea of selfish rivalry or selfish ambition. Vainglory has the idea of an empty pride or a conceit, a cheap desire to boast. But we should consider others better than self. Flip, if you will, back just a few pages to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12.10, And be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing the necessity of saints given to hospitality. You know, it's interesting. These commands here are given to all Christians, but how many of these are very similar to the qualifications of a pastor or deacon? Consider others better than self, preferring one another. You know, when you're having a conversation with someone, are you the one that has to do all the talking? Or do you like to ask questions and listen and learn about the other person? And what you do, do you do it so people will praise you for it? Or do you do it because you want to do it for the glory of God? Why do you do the things you do? Going back to our passage. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Look for ways to be a help to others. Be a servant, don't look to be served. Be a servant, don't look to be served. Learn to serve others, and God is going to bless you richly. It's amazing how it works. It seems so backwards. But when I'm not looking to be served, not looking what's in it for me, but I'm looking to be a blessing to others, I will always be blessed in in doing so. It seems contradictory, but it's really not. But we need to be clothed with humility. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, 
as he's exhorting the elders, and we come down to verse 5, he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. The idea of being clothed with humility has the idea of putting on the garments of a servant. And I can't help but believe that Peter in this passage is looking back to a night before Christ was crucified when his Bible tells us he laid aside his garments and girt himself with a towel and washed the disciples' feet. You see, what Peter saw was the greatest example of the Son of God laying aside his coat, his position, if you will, because is he not Lord? He even says, you call me Lord, and you say, well, because he is, right? For so I am. He says, but so if I have served you in this fashion, then you ought to serve one another in the same fashion. Now, I'm glad he was not instituting a ordinance of foot washing. Had he, I would gladly come wash your feet, but that's not what he was saying, okay? What he was saying, though, is that the responsibility of washing the feet was given to the lowest servant in the house. And he was willing to stoop to that level to serve his disciples so you and I should be willing to do whatever to serve others. Do it with humility. Clothing with humility. He laid aside his garments to put on the towel of service and wash the disciples' feet so you and I should be willing to serve others. I am thankful over the years of pastoring here, that we have had a unity in Freedom Baptist Church. Now, does that mean we've never had disagreements? No. But I am thankful that most times there's been disagreements here, they've been handled in a godly fashion. I am thankful that I believe the times where there's been conflict or disagreements, it's actually helped strengthen the church, not weaken the church. That shows a unified spirit. You see, because unity doesn't mean everybody's automatically going to be a yes man to everything. Unity means we're cooperating together under the control of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit indwelling us to serve Christ together, right? Serving one another loving one another, preferring one another. Now, that is within the body. And once within the church body we have this unity, then we can be the salt and light in our community that God has called us to be. We can be used of God to go into this world and show them the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because we are living in unity, our lifestyle will match our words. Because too often the world says, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want anything to do with church. I don't want anything to do because they're all living a bunch of hypocrites and they can't get along and blah, 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 blah. Well, listen, if we are living Christ-like, and this body is a unified body, 
those accusations from the world won't stick. Doesn't mean they won't come, but they won't stick, right? Because, you know, they'll actually be able to look at us and say there's something different there. And that something different is what should attract the world to Christ, is it not? The fact that we do have love for one another. He says, how's the world going to know you're my disciples? By your love one to another. And so let us learn to live in unity. Just as everyone had to learn to march in step for it to look like one unit. So each one of us has to do our part to have unity in the church. And having unity is completely heavenly. We cannot have it without Christ. Unity is complete harmony. We all need to work together. And unity requires complete humility. We must put others ahead of self.